It's not over. Amen? He's risen. Amen. Let me tell you what Easter is not about. You may have heard about the little girl in Sunday school class and the teacher said, can somebody tell us today what Easter's all about? And she raised her hand. She said, I can, I can tell. And she said, okay, tell us. If Jesus comes out of the tomb and sees his shadow, we'll have six more weeks of winter. That's not what it's about. Mark chapter 16, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word please? It's not over. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Father, we thank you so much for the events of this past week. That we've celebrated. We commonly refer to it as Passion Week, where we remember the uh, agony and suffering of the Lord Jesus. I think of the unjust trial with the false witnesses. They could not find anything wrong with his life, no sin in him, and so they had to produce false witnesses who lied about him. But Lord, we know that was all part of your plan because you had appointed that he would go to the cross. There on Good Friday, as we call it, he went to the cross and died. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. They laid him on in the tomb, but that was not the end of the story. It wasn't over. Because on that first Easter Sunday morning, they went to the tomb and it was empty because he's alive. Father, we thank you for the promise we have in the word of God that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Lord, we know until that time that we are with you. That Christ is with you at your right hand and he's making intercession for the saints. He's our advocate. Father, I pray for that one here today who may as yet not have a relationship with you through faith in Christ. That just as you opened Lydia's heart there in Philippi, 
That you would open their heart to faith in Christ today. That today would be the beginning of a whole new journey for them. For others carrying burdens that we would realize that the Bible says we can cast all care upon you because you care for us. God, this is a day of victory. We thank you that every day for the Christian is a day of victory. We pray that you would be pleased to be among us today and visit with us. May your will be accomplished. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was a crisp fall day. There was a chilliness in the air. The University of Colorado was playing the University of Michigan. Both teams were undefeated and both teams hoped that day to keep their records the same. Undefeated. The game was being played at Michigan giving them a home field advantage in front of about 105,000 fans. Now during the last two minutes of the game, Michigan scored a touchdown to go ahead of Colorado by four points. Colorado got the ball back with just one minute to go on the clock. They had 80 yards to go. A field goal, of course, would do them no good. It had to be a touchdown. Two passes were incomplete and now they had just six seconds left on the clock. It was time for a Hail Mary pass. The Colorado quarterback dropped back in the pocket and he let one sail for 60 yards. Both teams' players were bunched up in the end zone together. Now for all practical purposes, the game was over. Because few times, statistically speaking, has a Hail Mary pass ever produced success. And so the Michigan fans were already beginning to jump up and down in their seats and cheer and wave their college flag. They were celebrating. They thought they had won the victory. It was, it was theirs, or so they thought. But at the last minute, a Michigan player in the end zone simply tipped the ball, and as a Colorado player was falling down in the end zone, the tipped ball landed right into his arms. He hit the turf and held on to the ball. It was a touchdown. Colorado had won the game. Michigan fans sat there absolutely stunned. They had thought the game was over. Folks, as we get into Mark chapter 16, the spirit of the text is that things are over. This whole Jesus movement was done. It would soon end because their leader was dead. His memory may last for a few months and perhaps even for three or four years later many in Israel would be talking about this prophet from Galilee who lost his life but memory beyond that would soon fade. 
Jesus' body had been hurriedly laid to rest in a tomb before the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. on Friday. There had not even been time to properly prepare the body with spices. Since they did not embalm bodies the way the ancient Egyptians did and the way modern Europeans and Americans do, it was necessary to put spices between the folds of the burial garments to keep down the odor as the body decomposed. These ladies were going to the tomb after the Sabbath to perform this labor of love. But I want you to notice the tone of the text as the chapter opens. It is a tone of failure. A tone of defeat. A tone of despair and confusion. All of their hopes have been dashed. And now everything is just going to go back in a few days to the way everything had always been. Or so they thought. Folks, the resurrection reveals that that death is not the end. It wasn't the end for Jesus. And because Jesus is raised from the dead, you too shall be raised either to everlasting life in heaven or to everlasting punishment in hell. The resurrection promises you and me that life is not over when this earthly life is over and our bodies are laid in the ground. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I can experience redemption and eternal life. Amen? I want you to see, first of all, with me this morning, an anxious heart. Read with me again, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 3. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I want you to notice how anxious these ladies seemed to be. They they were anxious, first of all, to finish what would normally have already been done. You see, Jesus' body was taken off the cross after 3 p.m. on Friday. The Sabbath, we know, began at 6 p.m. Now, the Gospel of John tells us that after uh, Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body off the cross, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighed about 75 pounds, and Nicodemus and Joseph wrapped the body in linens and put the spices in into the folds of the linens before they put the body in the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had recently purchased. Now the women who were followers of Jesus had witnessed all of this, but apparently the job was not complete. And so Luke tells us that the women went back in in the little bit of time they had before 6 p.m. on Friday, and they had prepared more spices. And then Luke tells us that they had all rested on the Sabbath as the Word of God commanded them to do. And with such an extensive job to do, it's only fitting that they would have waited until Sunday morning. Because had they started after the Sabbath ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday, darkness would have soon overtaken them and they would have run out of time anyway. 
And so early on Sunday morning, about sunrise, these women get together and they journey to the tomb once again. They're anxious to finish what normally would have been already completed. Folks, this is a labor of love. They're devoted to the Lord Jesus. Their their love and devotion to the Lord Jesus continued even after they believed He was dead. But what I want you to see is how anxious they were and how somber the mood was. Now if you've ever gone to a funeral home and, and buried a parent or a child or a spouse, and of course, you, you, you know what happens. You, you take the clothing by the day before visitation. You, you uh, get a suit or a dress together, and you, you take everything by that you want the funeral home to dress your loved one in before visitation and before the funeral. And if you've ever had to get all those items together and make that journey down to the funeral home, you know exactly the pain and the anguish and the anxiety these women are facing in their hearts. They were also anxious about the large rock that was placed in front of the door of the tomb. Matthew tells us that in addition to the large stone, that the enemies of Jesus have gone to Pilate. They've requested an official Roman guard to be placed at the tomb. Now folks, isn't it wonderful how a living, risen Lord had already taken care of every source of their anxieties? I want you to think about people today. People today have anxious hearts about so many things. People wonder, can I really be made right with God? Can I really be forgiven of everything I've ever done wrong in my life? Can I stand before God one day and be justified and know that the slate can be wiped clean and I will have a home With Christ in heaven. Can I really know that? Can I really know that after I die. As the Bible says. Absent from the body. Present with the Lord. Can I know that there is life beyond the grave? People even wonder about all the anxieties of this life. They worry about their kids. They worry about their bills. They worry about their jobs. They worry about their mortgages. Can I I handle all of those things? Will God help me with any of that? And folks, I want you to notice what the resurrection of Jesus Christ says. It says that God is able to help us with all the anxieties, all the worries of life, anything that's causing you to have an anxious heart, God can help you with that. Now, it doesn't mean He's going to take away all your earthly problems, but He'll be with you through that. And the Bible certainly assures you, as we studied last week in 1 Peter 3.18, the just died for the unjust that he might take us to God. We know that we can have peace before God and we can be justified in His presence and reconciled with Him and we can know that our names will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We can know that. And we can know that even through these worries and and anxieties we have in, in this life, God's going to help us. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus said, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or drink, or, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. We've got so many burdens in life, and so many worries and anxieties in life, and yet the Bible tells us that we can cast all of our care upon Him because He cares for us. Amen? A living Lord can bring peace to an anxious heart. Secondly, I want you to notice with me this morning an astonishing discovery. Look, beginning at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. They make an astounding discovery. And that discovery is first of all an open tomb. Now unknown to them, something miraculous has transpired during the early morning hours. Folks, we're not told all the details of how God accomplished the resurrection. We're just told that it did indeed happen. They got there and they saw an an open tomb. But not only did they see an open tomb, but they found an empty tomb. The recent occupant was gone. Now unbelievers and skeptics down through the ages have proposed some foolish arguments to try to explain what they think might have happened. You've probably heard something about or read something about the swoon theory. Skeptics used to say that Jesus was falsely believed to be dead and in the coolness of the tomb he simply revived, he came forth and he convinced everybody that he had risen from the dead. However, that ignores the fact that none of the ancient authorities, not even the enemies of Christ, ever believed anything other than the fact that he was indeed dead. There's the wound of the centurion. It produced both blood and water, evidence of death, because the blood had already separated into its various elements. There's the testimony of the centurion, a man trained in administering death, who proclaimed Jesus' death. There are the grave clothes. The Jews tightly wrapped corpses in grave clothes and between the folds would would place up to hundreds of pounds even of spices and they would tightly wrap the head. The appearance would have been mummy-like. Now suppose Jesus who had been crucified could have gotten out of those grave clothes. He would then have had to go over to a large stone with hands that had been pierced, place them on the flat side, the inside of a huge rock, and roll it uphill in its track and out of the way. He would have then had to have faced the Roman guard and overcome them by sheer force all of this for a man that had been recently crucified. Then he would have walked 14 miles to Emmaus and back 
that afternoon on feet that had been nailed to a cross. Even David Strauss himself, an unbeliever, called the swoon theory absolutely absurd. He wrote, it is impossible that one who had just come forth from the grave half dead, who stood in need of emergency medical treatment and tender care, could ever have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death in the grave. And then there's the ridiculous theory that the enemies of Jesus simply stole the body. Now folks, if this were the case, when the disciples of Jesus went around Jerusalem and the surrounding area and they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the enemies of Christ would have needed to do was what? Simply produce the body. Furthermore, this theory would not explain the actual witnesses. Now akin to this theory is the theory that the disciples stole the body but the disciples almost to a man with the exception of John ended up dying horrible torturous deaths because of their preaching of the resurrection. Now I realize that somebody might live for a lie but I don't know anybody that would die a terrible death for something they knew to be a lie. And there's been the theory that the resurrection was only a hallucination by men and women who so wanted it to be true that they imagined it to the point of believing that it was fact even to the point that they they wanted it so badly that they all simply hallucinated it. Now if that were so, how do you account for the women who went to the tomb fully expecting to anoint a dead body with spices? They were grieving as dead. Mary was grieving thinking somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. She was not expecting what she saw next. And how do we account for the unbelief of the disciples in the upper room? They were certainly not expecting a risen Lord either. They would not talked themselves into believing something or seeing visions of something. And also in the history of hallucinations, never do 500 different people all see the very same thing at the same time as Paul pointed out they did in 1 Corinthians 15. And furthermore again, if they were only proclaiming their hallucinations, their enemies could have simply gone to the tomb and produced the dead body. Now on and on we could go with the ridiculous arguments of the skeptics down through the ages. But folks, let's think about some of the things a moment that show the validity of what happened that first Easter morning. First of all, there's the fact of the Lord's day. The Hebrews tenaciously held for thousands of years to the Sabbath because that's what God had commanded. And then suddenly after the resurrection you have a group of Jews changing the day of worship away from the Sabbath uh, to Sunday, the first day of the week. Something had to have happened to have accounted for that. That would have been astounding, an astounding change in the life of any Jew. Then there's Easter. Again, Easter has replaced the Jewish holiday of Passover. The celebration of Easter as Christ's resurrection can be traced all the way back to the early church. For that first group of Jewish Christians replacing Passover, which had been one of their most sacred holidays, again, there had to be a reason for that. 
And then there's Christian art in the catacombs uh, under Rome. From the hands of some of the first persecuted Christians, we find carved into the walls depictions of Christ's resurrection. Then there's Christian hymnody. Hymns were sung in the early church concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then you have the church. William Barclay says, By far the greatest evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the existence of the church. How did the largest institution known to man, many times greater than the Roman Empire ever was, how do you account for the institution called the church that came into being? Like somebody once said, the Grand Canyon didn't happen because of an Indian dragging a stick. Then there are the apostles themselves. Now you remember the apostles before the resurrection. They're huddled together in fear up in the upper room. They're scared to death of the authorities. And they're wondering what's going to happen next. But after Jesus appeared to them up in the upper room, we don't see them huddling together in fear anymore. We see them out in the streets of Jerusalem and the major cities around the empire at that time. And they're proclaiming, boldly proclaiming, that Jesus Christ is alive even though both the civil and the religious authorities are charging them that they better not speak anymore in that name. And yet there they are preaching the resurrection. They're not scared anymore. They're bold. And then of course you have to account for the life of the apostle Paul himself. Paul had been Rabbi Saul. He had been a rising star among the Jewish rabbis. He absolutely hated Christianity. He hated all talk about Jesus and he was trying to stamp out everything about Jesus. And that's why he was going up to Damascus. He had orders from the high priest that he could lay hands on all the believers there, bring them back to Jerusalem and either put them in prison or put them to death. But there on the road to Damascus, Rabbi Saul encountered the risen Lord and the greatest persecutor of the church all of a sudden became the greatest propagator of the Christian faith. Folks, there's no reason in the world whatsoever to doubt the testimony of the angel. And when these women with an anxious heart went and made that astounding discovery and everything that they found out there, the open tomb and the empty tomb, there is no good reason whatsoever that anybody today would doubt that. Thirdly, I want you to see an amazing message. In verses 6 and 7, the Bible says, And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Don't be afraid. He's not here. He's risen. Come and see. Come and investigate where he was and go and tell his disciples what an amazing message this was. He's not here. He's risen. Fear not. 
Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Folks, no wonder the four Gospels record the resurrection. The resurrection is not a tag-on event. It's not an epilogue. It's not a footnote. It is the very essence of Christianity. It's the main event. The teachings of Jesus are wonderful. The miracles of Jesus are wonderful. But folks, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the teachings and the miracles of Jesus would have simply faded into the background and ended up being nothing more than a chapter in the life of the world's greatest men. But Jesus is not simply a great man. He's the living Lord. He's the God-man. The greatest life ever lived is the Lord Jesus. The greatest event in his life was the resurrection. And so that makes the resurrection the greatest event in the history of all existence. And in no way is that an exaggerated statement. You could not overstate the importance of the resurrection. That's precisely Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul said if the dead are not raised, then that would mean that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he died in vain. You're still in your sins and and your faith in him is all in vain. This hope that you have is all in vain. And, And he says we have nothing to hope for and we would of all men be the most miserable. The resurrection is that important. Jesus is not simply a memory. He is a living presence because he's alive. Folks, why is the message of Easter so amazing? It's because our Christian hope is tied up in Easter. The Easter message of the resurrection should still be just as amazing to us today as it was to those ladies back then. I want you to notice with this amazing message, there's fourthly an astonishing announcement. Verse 7, they're told, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone For they were afraid. They were to go and tell the disciples and Peter this was not to be a secret. They were to tell the disciples who would in turn go and tell others. And because he lives, we're to continue today to go into all the world and tell the story and make disciples. We've got a team in South Africa right now that tomorrow they'll be going up into a hill country and showing the Jesus film and talking about Jesus to a group of people that presumably some of them have never even heard the name Jesus. Why do we do that? Because He lives. And it's our commission. And I want you to notice another touching part of this story. Not only go and tell his disciples, but tell who else? Tell Peter. 
Folks, what an exciting moment this would have been in Peter's life because I'm sure at this point Peter is probably wondering, is he still included in in God's business? Can can he be forgiven of these denials? Can Can he still be used? Can he still be a vessel in God's hands? And yes, the risen Christ is saying, go and tell the disciples, but not only the disciples, but make sure Peter knows also. God had a wonderful plan for Peter. In fact, remembering back to Matthew 16, uh, when, when Jesus confessed Christ, uh, Peter was, was given the keys. And, and with those keys, Jesus said, you're going to unlock the wonderful truths of the gospel, first of all, to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so Peter wouldn't simply have a role in the mission of the church, but he would have a very important role. He was forgiven by God. God still wanted to use him in mighty ways. What an astonishing announcement. Now folks, in closing today, I want to wrap up by reminding you of what Easter does for us. First of all, it proves the truthfulness of the Word of God. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we find the sermon at uh, Pentecost that Peter preached. And pick up reading with me, if you would please, in verse 25. Peter is quoting one of the Psalms of David, Psalm 16, and he says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. With your presence. Now don't miss Peter's point here. Peter is saying that that God was prophesying through King David hundreds of years before the time of Christ that Christ would be raised. Pick up with me again in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so you see what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the truthfulness of God's word. God had said hundreds of years before the crucifixion, hundreds of years before the resurrection, that he would not allow his son to see decay and corruption there inside of the tomb, but he would be raised from the dead. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that God's word is reliable. Folks, I want you to think of how important that is. 
Because if God's word was not reliable about things like the resurrection and things that we read about in the scripture, then you and I today would have no basis whatsoever of thinking that God's promises to us today are reliable. I mean, if God would have broken his promises back then, God would just as easily break his promises today. But showing that he kept his promises back then assures us that he keeps his promises today. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Ladies and gentlemen, we can know God keeps his promises. A second thing the resurrection shows us. It proves the deity of the Son of God. It's God's testimony to the deity of His Son. Now in the New Testament there were a lot of individuals who testified to Christ's deity. You remember the demons in Mark chapter 5? There was that man among the tombs, the garrison demoniac that nobody could do anything with. And when Jesus approached him, the demons cried out. They said, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, what do we have to do with you? They proclaimed who Jesus was. They knew exactly. Think of this. The demons in hell know exactly who Jesus is. They proclaimed his deity. The disciples in Matthew 16 there at Caesarea Philippi, they proclaimed as deity. Uh, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was even the Roman centurion at the death of Christ. He said, surely this man was indeed the son of God. All of those are wonderful testimonies to the deity of Christ. The resurrection is God's proclamation of the deity of Christ. Romans 1.4 says, Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Thirdly, the resurrection completes our salvation. Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And so the resurrection completes the cycle that the cross points to. At the cross, Jesus died for our sins. But because he was sinless, when he died for our sin, the Bible says that God looked at his sacrifice... And was pleased with it. And so God raised his son from the dead to give us eternal life. Showing that he had fully and completely accepted the sacrifice that that Christ had made. And so the empty tomb completes the cross. Fourthly, it warns us that we have a judge in Acts 17. The Bible says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Folks, you can't hold court if the judge is dead. 
Because of the resurrection, court is in session. The judge is alive. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And lastly, it communicates to the church the heart of its mission. We don't go around the world talking about a dead man. We proclaim a living Savior who's able to forgive us and take us to God. No wonder we celebrate Easter. It's like the song says, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. He died on the cross. The just for the unjust. He was laid in the tomb. On the third day, he was raised. Over 40 days, he appeared to his disciples and and many witnesses and gave convincing proof that he had indeed been raised from the dead. At the close of that period of time, he ascended to the Father. And the Bible says today he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercession for you and me. He's our advocate, our defense attorney before the Father. And one of these days, he's coming again for his church. How can he do that? Because he lives. He lives. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, I know that all the promises of God are going to be fulfilled. Because He lives, I know that I'm not alone on this earth. That even though I go through trial and tribulation, He's there with us. Jesus said, I'll not leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. He sent His Spirit who dwells within us. And He teaches us. And He's our wonderful Counselor. And he puts that hope in our heart. And we know that one of these days when we do die, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. One of these days we're going to rule and reign with him. He lives. Folks, that's the significance of Easter. We don't celebrate a dead prophet, but a living Lord. That's our Easter hope. Is it your hope this morning? I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me. And as you do so, I wonder today, is there anyone here who needs to say right now, God, I believe. God, I believe. Forgive me. Live your life in me and through me. Help me to be a witness of your life and of your saving power. Be my Lord from this moment forward. You are Lord, but be the Lord of my life. What an awesome day to give your life to Christ. If you've looked to Christ and Christ alone today to be your Savior, the Bible says you need to confess Him before men. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that today in just a moment as we sing. You can come down the aisle closest to you and come up front and confess Christ as Lord. 
I want you to also remember today that since he lives, he sees everything about your life and my life. He knows all about us. He knows your needs, your hurts, your sin. And so is is there a decision you need to make today to start trusting him over even the smallest details of your life? Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Remember also that you have a mission because of Easter. There is no way that a disciple of Christ who believes that he lives, there's no way that we are supposed to be neutral or uninvolved as to that fact. It is a life-changing reality. And so are there those around you that you need to be a witness to. Father, we thank you today for what you have accomplished for us through the cross and the empty tomb. We can be redeemed. We can have peace with God. We can be reconciled with you. And one day we'll be with you in heaven. And until then, we have the promise of your presence with us. God, what a message of victory and hope Easter is. And as we leave this place today, help us to live in that hope. Help us to live in that victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please? Again, I can't emphasize enough. If you've never confessed Christ, Jesus said, if you confess me before men... I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Is there somebody here this morning? Maybe you have never, ever confessed Christ as the Lord of your life. You need to do so. The altar's open too. If there's things in your life you need to pray about. Burdens that you're carrying around and, and, and have you anxious and worried and keeping you awake at night. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to say, If that's how God treated us when we were his enemies, how much more will he provide for us now that we've been reconciled to him? He loves us. We can trust everything over to Him. Do you need to do that today? Maybe there's somebody here this morning that needs a church home. You need a place where, where you can celebrate. We celebrate Easter every single week here. Every single day we celebrate Easter. He lives. And maybe you need a church home where you can study the Scripture and pray with other believers and celebrate His life. And get ready for his return. We'd love to be your church home.